Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today, I'm thrilled to sit down with one of my favorite producers from Buzz Bomb Studios and a founding member of one of the greatest hardcore bands, in my opinion, Death by Stereo. That's right, we're talking to Paul Miner. We're going to go through his whole discography, amazing body of work, everything from Newfound Glory to Agnostic Front, and of course, the new and the old, Death by Stereo. This is Paul Miner. So we'll go the old-fashioned way. All right. All right, man. Well, uh, p- pleasure to meet you. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. My pleasure. I'm sorry so much back and forth to make it happen no problem man like if if there's anything i am it's uh it's persistent you know if i get a inclination that somebody wants to do it i'll just hang out until it's time to make it happen you know right on first of all before i forget my most recent producer guest was jason livermore and i think it was off air i'm pretty sure we were talking i don't think it's on the episode you came up somehow, and he said that he had been working on a record that you had produced, and he was going to mix and master. Mm-hmm. Was this a Chaser album? Yeah, that sounds right. And he said, yeah. I was working on it, and it was it sounded pretty good. And then um, I was like, hey, do you guys have a rough mix, by the way, of just like kind of you know what you were going for? And they sent over Paul's rough mix, and I was just like... Oh no, like this is not good enough. Like I need to start over. Oh wow. So he he had like high praise for you and I, I was like, man, I gotta be sure to tell him that. Uh and he's like, Oh, please do. I was blown away by even his rough mix was better than what I was working on. So uh oh, that's that's awesome to hear. Full story behind that was I was just doing that for fun. That was the actual proper mix that I had done just to show those guys, like, hey, here's a mix. I know that they had already planned on having Jason mix it, so, but it was just more for fun. So It wasn't like a me not trying, it was me trying. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, because anyway, I thought that was really cool. Awesome Two of my favorite engineers like giving props to each other on a collaboration. I like that. That's awesome. So uh, typically on this show, you know, we, we go through the, the body of work. You know, we dive into the discography a little bit. Are you cool with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously me and a lot of people, we know you through Death by Stereo. I'm curious though, was that your first band? No, uh, I had played in a, a couple bands before. One was like my high school band with some friends that with my brother and two other friends. We were called Shrapnel. We were a metal band. We really loved Iron Maiden. Nice. And then, uh, and then after that, we started a band called Kleenex, C-L-E-A-N-X. And that was also with my brother Jim that was later in Death by Stereo, but we started with one lineup and then kicked out our singer and guitar player, and Ian, who ended up being in Death by Stereo and is now in Aquabats, was in that band Kleenex for a little, a little bit, little time. Then, basically, that band kind of started to stop doing things, and uh, Ephraim's band and Ian and Jared's other bands, we were, all three of our bands were kind of like, slowing down a little bit so we decided hey all the people that want to keep playing and keep you know like pursuing this let's start a new band and that was that by Sarah. it basically started with me ian and jared the three of us and then it only took like a week or two before it was like hey jim you should play with us and so jim started jamming and then like, we got to find a singer i'm like i know this guy Ephraim. he's in clint we, our bands have played shows with them and so that's how and then we yeah we all started jamming in jared's garage and Right around that time was when I started working at For the Record, 
and kind of needed some guinea pig projects. Oh, perfect. So I recorded the Death by Stereo demo. I had just started doing some other bands around that time, but it was pretty early on that, like, Death by Stereo started maybe a little bit after I had started working for the record. So it was an easy slam dunk thing of, hey, I work in the studio. We can record a demo for barely anything. So that was within the, the space of probably about, I would say, three years of, before of me playing in an act, in actual band before Death by Stereo started. Nice, nice. Get your uh, momentum under your belt, and, and then you all come together charged and ready to do something? Yeah. Yeah, everyone was very motivated. And, and we all were, you know, at that point in our lives, all had uh, nothing but time, and all we cared about is music, and we loved it, loved jamming, loved hanging out. I mean, are you guys, like, just out of high school at that time, or how old are you there? Yeah, so at that, when Death by Stereo started, myself and Ephraim, oh, and I think Ian was out of high school too, but Jared, the drummer, Jared Alexander was still, I think he was a junior in high school, and then Jim and Ian had just graduated, and then I was a couple years older, Ephraim was a couple, couple years older, but he was like, yeah, just emerging from high school, maybe. That's just such a magic, creative time, you know, when you're playing with your friends and diving into music and experimenting and, you know, hearing new sounds for the first time. And it's just like, I don't know, but for me, that was just such a, a great creative time in my life. Absolutely. I think it was a special time also because we connected through, like, learning about other bands and music. And, like, I know that this sounds like a get off my lawn old guy thing but <laughs> there wasn't like the internet to be able to just instantly find everything about every band it was Ephraim showing me hey you gotta check out this record from this German band called the Spermbergs I'm like what the fuck is this <laughs> I mean, like each of us would discover new music through our friendships instead of just looking it up on the internet so I think that, that social aspect of it was part of what drew us you know like made it a, a unique time and just not only playing music together but discovering influences and, and that kind of thing well and you guys were I, I talked with Mike Canberra on the show a little while ago and we talked a little bit about kind of the 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 DBS sound and, you know, it's prior to his time, but I mean, we talked about the lineage of like, you know, Propagandi and Strung Out and there were, there were these bands who were blending punk and metal, but I mean, when you guys started, obviously you were coming from metal. You were talking about Maiden being a big influence. I mean, did you, I mean, did it just sort of happen or were you guys like talking about some, some cool shit you could try, some mixing of styles that you wanted to experiment with? I mean, it was conscious. Like, we definitely were like, hey, we want to throw all these influences in a blender and try to not sound like anyone and try to do something different. It wasn't like it just happened and these songs emerged. Like, we were conscious of the fact that we were, like, trying to not sound like other things that were out there at the time. And, and it's like me and my brother came, like, we got into metal first. And, like... Ephraim was into punk first, and Ian like rock and roll and stray cats, and we tried to bring it all together and be quirky and weird and metal and punk and hardcore all at the same time. I mean, it's it's rare too that it's. I mean, you're a political band, but also have like a super cutting sense of humor, and I mean, I think even to this day, as more and more bands have mixed genres and and kind of followed that path, there's not really anybody who sounds like Death by Stereo, you know? I 
appreciate that. I don't. I mean, if that's the case, then that's awesome. I we t- we were trying to be unique, but I wasn't like we were trying to be something. We just wanted to throw everything in the blender. I guess that would be a, a good way of describing it. But it, it's, I guess a compliment to all the people that have been in the band, not just the original lineup, but everyone since of kind of maintaining that ethos of like being serious but quirky and joking at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that has always been part of, I guess, what we were doing. I mean, it's kind of like a lot of great stand-up. You know, you can talk about some really intense, almost soul-crushing topics if you do it with wit and humor. That's a very good analogy. I never thought of it that way, but it's absolutely the same thing. It's like a way of getting people to listen to your actual messages if you deliver it in a funny or cheeky way. Yeah, totally. Now, before we dive into you as a producer, because there's so much there, one thing I didn't realize is that you did a good amount of artwork back then, too, where you did the layout for Day of the Death, layouts for, like, Ensign and Distillers and AFI and, like, so many of my favorite albums that came out around that time. So are you doing that in in parallel, or was that earlier... It was kind of parallel. So I actually, that's what I went to college for, was for graphic design. And I was the kid that knew how to use the computer programs. And my friends were like, hey, can you help us with a layout for this record? We don't know how to do it. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I know how to do it. And and then I kind of pursued that a little bit more by going to college for it. But it was at the same time of playing in bands and making these relationships and friendships through playing shows and that kind of stuff. So to circle back the AFI thing, Kleenex, the band that I had with my brother before Death by Stereo, we actually played, became friends with AFI and played like their record release show in San Francisco, and I want to say it was in 96. So I was doing that at the same time playing in bands. But yeah, it was, I really liked doing it, but then I, at a certain point, got so busy with Death by Stereo that I just didn't have time to do it anymore. And yeah. then that gradually turned into being out of practice and not having the confidence or ability to do it anymore. So I don't really do it much these days, but I did love doing it back then. Yeah, I mean, when you're in a band, that's an invaluable tool in your in your skill set. Yeah. I knew how many great records that you had worked on, and you know, I've been a fan for a long time, but it was just cool to see that extra connective tissue from that, that scene in that era that I loved so much. I mean, obviously, that... Ensign record was on Indecision, so that made sense. But, um, yep. you know, the Distillers and AFI shit, I just got a kick out of that because it's like, man, so many more of my favorite albums, more than I even knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had become friends with AFI, and then I think it was, I'm trying to remember the timeline, but I recorded the first Nerve Agents album. I did the layout for that as well, and was friends with Andy, who played drums on the first Nerve Agents record, and Tim Presley. And or I guess Tim wasn't in the Distillers, but Andy went on to be in the Distillers, and that that was my connection into oh, that. Oh, okay, okay. And then, and then also the Epitaph thing, like we, you know, around that time we moved from Indecision to Epitaph and became were becoming friends with you know people in that world. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but I mean. I don't think of Day of the Death as, you know, it's not necessarily the first album I think of with Death by Stereo, but I mean, that album, like, your production game was a step up, you've 
you know, leveled up with your label. You signed with Epitaph, obviously getting on comps and, and getting way more eyes on the band. Um, you know, I, I remember just the opening song comes out so hard and like sitting in my bedroom in eighth grade, like learning that guitar solo and just like being blown <laughs> away. But it also has like, uh, it ends with the song Death for Life, which is not necessarily like a regular set list song, but it's the kind of motto that stayed with the band to this day. I mean, that was really a, a important album for you guys. Absolutely. Like, I mean, our first album was basically our creative energy just exploding, and we were just writing everything that we wanted and exploding with creativity. Day of the Death was the first album that any of us had to write. Like, it was the first time <laughs> yeah. that any of us had experienced in our lives. Like, okay, Epitaph says you guys need to have an album done by this time. And we were like, oh, wow, we're going to go. We actually have to, have to try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, whatever we wrote, like, we put on an album or put, like, whenever we felt like we were done, that's what we put out. Like, this is the first time for any of us that we had any kind of, like, pressure and there was any real form of seriousness around being under the gun. Not to take anything, like, Indecision was an awesome home and it was a great period of time for all of us individually and, like, the bands on the label at the time. We were all friends and touring and doing really well. But Dave was our friend and as much as he was serious about Indecision, he was a one-man operation. And yeah. So moving to FTAP was a different world that we hadn't experienced before. So it was really different in the sense that we had that kind of pressure to perform and expectations put on us. And then I think that I look back on it and I'm happy with how the album came out. I, I would generally say I'm never happy with anything that I do. On oh, man. But I am still proud of that record. That was a big step. Per, per, you know like Brett Gerwitz let me borrow his racks of gear to let me mix the album and that was a big I'd never done that before using I mean I don't know how much you want me to detail of gear yeah I mean this is this is a I'm interviewing an engineer so I mean have at it <laughs> just literal two six foot tall racks of gear but every single piece cost a few thousand dollars and I never had access to that kind of stuff before and let, he's like hey I'm here and you should use the mix of that and I was like whoa hey cool and I set it down and, and I got to eat and it was like a, a real awe moment of whoa this is what it's like to use this and, and in that era there was no protocols so it was sure a lot more limited in production techniques just because it, but we're more limited by actual equipment the, if you are less limited by the gear it was, it was a challenge but it was also a big uh, big turning point well, and also, I think that's a big vote of confidence signing to a, a bigger label like that. I mean, they're still independent, but I mean, they're the independent. And you've got a guy like Brett who listens to the first record and goes, you just produce your own shit. Like, I'm here, you want to borrow some equipment? Go right ahead, you know, but like, you know what you're doing. Uh, when I look back on it, it's kind of crazy the amount of trust that Brett put in us to, or put in me particularly to do it on my own. And, and it, it actually just to jump forward a little bit on our on the third album Into the Valley of Death so Day of the Death we got mastered with this guy Eddie Shry and yeah. he had mastered all his bad religion like oh, tons of stuff 
He like big mastering engineer, but he was really expensive. And on Into the Valley of Death, we took it back to have him master it, and I was really unhappy with how it came out. And it was around that time that I started getting my own gear and recording stuff into the, into the computer at home and started doing mastering for bands on Indecision. And, and then I asked Brett, like, hey, would you be cool if I tried to take the crack at mastering this record? Because I'm really not happy with how, what Eddie did. And he's like, yeah, if you can make it sound better, then cool. And I did, and he was happy with it. And I, that was like a very large turning point for me to say, hey, I can hang with these guys that are like charging a ton of money and, you know, doing huge records. Like I have the ability and I have the, the gear that I can make this really compete. So Brett's trust in me to do that was a really big thing as far as just my, my producing career and mastering. So I am thankful for that trust that he did put in us, you know, as a band, but me particularly back then. Just to clarify. So, the version of Into the Valley that came out is not the original master, right? You remastered it. Is that the idea? Correct. Okay. So yeah, the one that got released is the one that I mastered. Yeah. Perfect. And, and and I think that there's so much to be said about you know having not just the right skill set, you know, the right person in terms of like technical ability, but also the right person just in terms of vision and style. And sometimes I've had situations where I had this one record that was just a really big, nasty, huge, guitar-heavy, disgusting-sounding record, and I, I felt like I had, was really happy with the mix, but I couldn't quite get the master right, and I was like, you know what, I need to take it to somebody, but I gave it to a local guy who's really, really good, and he like cleaned it up too much, and I was like, oh no, this isn't, no. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. I, gave, I gave him like a song. Like, hey, can you do a pass on this and see if it's better than mine? And he did it, uh-huh. and I was like, well, no, it's not going to work out. It's okay. And I took it to somebody else. Same sort of thing. And it wasn't until uh, I took it to a third guy who I'd worked with on other records in the past, and he totally got the direction I was going for, you know? And so much of it, I feel like, is just about actually getting what the statement of the album is and the actual vibe and the energy of it, you know? Because you can clean it up and make it more perfect, but that's not always the thing. Yeah, and I think that's why I always like working with friends of friends of friends. Everything that I do in my producing and engineering career has been through, like, relationships with friends that I've made. And, and what I think that that results in is, like, I'm not working on records or bands that I don't get. That it's just like, this isn't my thing, I don't get it. Yeah. So I'm not trying to put a punk hardcore stamp on some like hip-hop record. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, if this is my world, then I know what it needs, and I know what the band or producer is trying to get out of it. So yeah, so yeah I think that it is very important to have that perspective. Not that now, I will say that I have mastered a handful of out of my genre record, and it's really fun, and I feel like I can still do a good job, but there is something you said for like being in that wheelhouse of, of understanding what it should sound like. Totally, yeah, and I think that, that especially when it's a collaboration, that you, know, you can put more trust in that person who's putting the finishing touches on your baby when you know that mm-hmm. they're coming from the same mentality, you know? Yeah. I guess since we're talking about Into the Valley... I was reading the, the liner notes today. I mean, you saw my Instagram post. I was kind of, um, 
I listened to about half of all those albums today, just kind of because um, oh, uh, I wanted to go back through and I have a frame of reference in memory of what the like the sonic evolution was in certain things, but I wanted to actually refresh my ears. And one thing that surprised me was that that record was made at Sound City. Yes. I had no idea. How did that come together? Through Brett. So after Day of the Death, you know, we were we started to do pretty well. We did we went on a warp tour, we were starting to sell sell some records and, and Brett said, Hey, why don't you guys track at Sound City, at least do the drums there and uh and by that time I had started doing like guitars and vocals at my house. But what we our plan was was to track drums at Sound City, do good guitars and vocals at my house and then I would mix it at for the record. And Brett was friends with Siobhan, who was the studio manager there, and she got us a deal, and we got to be there for five days and tracking this historic, amazing studio on the Magic Neve console. And That's um, awesome. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience, and actually through that, I became friends with the studio manager because of Death by Stereo tracking that, and then I recorded the first Terror album, at Sound City also because Fuck I yeah. said, hey, she'll, she'll give me that same deal of like, let's do the drums for terror there. And so, so yeah. Then did you end up tracking the guitars and vocals at your place separately? Yes. By that time, I was living with Dave from Indecision. He had let me build a ISO booth and control and he had this little pool house in, in his backyard. And again, Brett let me borrow some gear couple mic preamps, I rented a few things, and we had done, he actually let us rent his Neumann U87 that he uses for Greg Graffin. Wow. So we used that microphone for Ephraim's vocals on that album. And then, yeah, we recorded everything there, and then, speaking of kind of turning points, that was actually the first album that I ever mixed all completely in Pro Tools. That was no console, no tape, once everything was recorded, so I mixed that all in the box back in... 2000, what is that, 2003? Yeah, um, yeah, man. And that was the early on of thinking that that was a, a possibility and that it could actually sound good. That um, album is just a fucking landmark, man. I mean, that, like, songs aside, because every song is a fucking banger, but, like, do you remember what you guys were running through on those guitar rigs? I mean, those are some of the meanest guitars ever put to tape, in my opinion, like... <laughs> Uh, I mean, I they, they, they've got that just top-end cutting saturation. I mean, it sounds like you're using mesas, but we used to geek out about that shit, man. I remember the day it came out in high school, we were playing a show, and we put it on in the sound system like before the show started, and we're just like, God, these guitars are fucking huge. What are they using? Wow. Well, thank you. Um, I do remember very specifically what we used. That was another trick that Brian Baker actually told us about, and Brett had used on the recent, like, Bad Religion record right around that time, doing one track with the red channel. This is all with a nation dual rec fire. Yeah. One track we did with the red channel, solitary rectifier, and then another track of the orange channel, tube rectifier, and we would did quad track guitars. So we did two rhythms each, it wasn't actually four performances. It was two performances. I had a splitter. Brett, let me use his Mesa splitter. So we'd do one amp was on the red channel, one amp was on the orange channel, but both were being run simultaneously. Yeah. And each amp was mic'd just with one SM57 through a Need 1073 
into, I think I, by that time, I had the Lavery Blue Converter. So, yeah, the Mesa Dual Rex Fire, the two-channel rack mount ones, and then uh, the other gym both had those, so we just used one for the red, one for the orange, and then used the Mesa Cab with the 30s. That's and so then, fucking um, clever, man. I've never heard of anybody doing that. Like, I, I always double track. I generally run one ahead and two cabs. I run a Mesa as my main, and then I'll do the, the second track, like the right channel, through my VHT because they have kind of, you know, different but complementary voices. But absolutely. I love the idea of kind of what I do with two different cabs. You're actually running two different heads but on inverted settings because that, that red channel is so much more scooped. Yeah. I just assumed that's what you were using on that. But, yeah, I kind of love that. It's going to make me want to experiment a little bit. Yeah, and I was way into that for a period of time because of Brett letting me have that splitter that he has. You could run up the four amps at one time. However, later, like not too far after that, I kind of got over, I, it was like paralysis by too many options. Yeah. And I still am at the point of like, do one track with one amp, one guitar, one cab. I might mic a couple of speakers and then like do one tone for each performance. And if it needs to be bigger, then I'll run multiple performances. But at that time, that was what I was doing with like multiple amps and trying to like get the mid range from the orange channel and then the bite from the red channel and combine those on each, on each one. And that's the Brian Baker secret, huh? Well, yeah, I think it was more of a Brett's idea was, to do the multiple amps, but I think it was Brett and Brian Baker's idea to do the two dual rectifiers on different settings. I can't remember if Brett said, yeah, we did this, or this is what I did for Brian's guitar, or if it was Brian's idea, I can't remember that, but it was definitely, the, that was the source of that idea. That's great. Well, I mean, everything about that album just sounded so good. I mean, obviously the guitars stand out to me, but I mean, that was sort of when you're starting to hear the Paul Minor sound, right? Because it's very naturalistic sound i mean you your records sound like a band playing live it's not like sampled and triggered and overproduced but it sounds huge at the same time you know and i think that that was really a record that made everybody at least i mean me and my friends who were geeking out about tone and stuff stop and listen and go oh shit did he do all these records yeah he did all these records man <laughs> like i'm watching for this guy and then shortly after you you did uh, our good friends countdown to life I love, it's, it's so weird that the Cats Out of the Life connection is because Josh had actually, I want to say that he messaged me like months ago, and then just like a week ago, I finally, like he's like, hey man, just wanted to check back in and see if you had it. We recorded these, a few songs after the full length that they were asking about. I'm like, you know, I, I definitely have that stuff archived. And I, and I called it back up and I'm like, yep, yeah, still all here. And I mixed it a couple days ago and nice. <laughs> I'm not actually sure what they're going to do with that song but it was just really cool to reconnect with those guys because it was so fun working with them back then and you know we've all gone on to do a lot of stuff in the meantime but uh, yeah those guys were great great dudes and it was super fun working with them back then we, I originally got hooked up with them was actually through Mike Hartsfield from New Age Records and I had worked at that label right around the beginning but right before the beginning of Death by Stereo. So became friends with him, and that's how I got hooked up with the countdown guys. I remember when, because um, we, we were good friends with those dudes. We played a lot of shows together, and they were just the rowdiest fucking band ever. And so, I mean, they had a record out, 
but it didn't capture the huge, crazy, ferocious live show, you know? And uh, uh-huh. I remember they told me that they were uh, getting to work with you. And again, it was so shortly after Into the Valley had really blown us away. I was like, fuck, that's awesome, guys. And as soon as they finished it, I don't remember if it was mastered yet, but we played, uh, they played our record release show for my band at the time. And I remember sitting in the parking lot and Danny was like, yo, check this out. He had a CDR of the full length. Man, we just blasted that shit and we're so excited. And, <laughs> and, and before you know it, the you know, countdown was over and Broadway was happening. So I, I just, I think it's great that they got to make that record before uh, they changed lanes. Yeah, that was such a fun period in time for, for me too. It was, it was awesome. I remember Danny saying that you actually tracked with a 58 for the vocals on that whole record. Is that true? Sounds right. I think that we did that all in the control room and he was just holding it because he didn't want to use headphones. And I remember having read that they had done that on the Deftones album and that they had just done a 58 and everyone was kind of into that idea. So, yeah, we did that. And can't remember if we did this with a full length, but at least for those three other songs that we did afterwards, I just tracked everyone playing together with no headphones in the live room. Nice. I like drums, bass, and guitars all in the same room just playing together no headphones to try to keep it like raw and energetic but yeah that was a uh, fun time for sure that's funny man like on the the jason livermore episode we talked about how vocalists will want to do that and they'll actually give you a better take if they're not in the other room with the headphones on but they can actually crank it up next to the speakers and, and go off and then, yeah. then and then also the record that he uh mixed for my band dead fucking serious we did record as a three-piece live here in all in one room just like that oh right on yeah it was funny both of those came back up right here i want to go through quickly just if we could touch on some of the other records in your catalog before we get to the 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 latest and greatest so missing 23rd Uh, i didn't even realize you would work with them i i i love those guys yeah we we played with them in, like early Death Place show, we played. Anytime we would play shows in the Oxnard, Ventura area, we would always either play with them or, you know, like hang out with them, but we had become good friends with those guys. And this guy, David Satani, as there was, known as Igby, uh, was putting out their album, and I had worked with him when I worked at Revelation. And then, yeah, the, we had gotten hooked up, and I did that at, for the record. And that is a funny story because speaking of to circle back to the rough mixes thing that that album their their full length album that I did we did it all for the record pretty straightforward kind of tracking setup and end of the night we I want to say we did like the whole album in two days you know like on a weekend or something and the end of the Sunday night I'm like okay I'll spin off rough mixes you know so you guys can listen to it and at that time, it was putting it on a cassette so they could listen to it on a cassette yeah. on the drive home. And then I would mix it later. We'd get back to the other formation. And then Mike, the guitar player, is like, we don't really want to change anything. Can we just use the rough mixes? And I was like, <laughs> Serious? seriously? Like, like, I guess. Okay. So, so that was it. Like, we just mastered the rough mixes and, and everyone was happy with it. Wow. that's I've never heard of anybody doing that. That's great. Yeah. Because... I mean, at, at that period of time, it was like, I wasn't getting crazy in the mix phase because I was working on an unautomated 
analog console. I didn't have the capabilities of doing too much. It was like, oh, yeah, maybe, you know, tweak the EQ on the guitars or the kick drum or whatever. But it's, like, mostly about balancing levels, and it didn't have automation. So the rough mix wasn't too far off from what I could do in a proper mix. Yeah. It's, like... Yeah, I probably would have liked to go back and tweak, but I, it was, everyone was happy with it, so I was happy to move forward. Well, yeah, I mean, on an analog board, you're committing to that rough mix. <laughs> yes, and there was also the fact that it was starting from scratch every time you did anything. So we did the rough mix at the end of the night, Sunday night, and to your point, it wasn't like you just call it back up, change one thing, be done. It was, hey, guys, either we live with this and are happy with the slight flaws that might be there, or we can start from scratch and mix it all over again, and it yeah. might not get there. So that that influenced our decision to just go with what we had, that everyone was pretty happy with. So you mentioned New Age, Revelation, Indecision, Epitaph. You've worked with everybody. I also want to throw out Nitro, uh, because you did the Jughead's, oh, yeah. Jughead's Revenge last record. That was awesome, Pearly Gates. Yes. It's funny, because that also was, in a way, a turning point record for me, because... Joe had put space in me to like do it and I, I feel like I wasn't working with a lot of bands that to me were that big and I felt like Joe put a lot of trust in me to, to do that record and it was super fun we, I feel like we did it pretty quickly but like they had already done the previous albums with Donnell Cameron and yeah. other guys who I looked up to and I was like wow you, you really want me to follow this up <laughs> and so I was a little bit kind of intimidated but through the process of making that record I gained a lot of confidence and that particular record gave me the money to buy my first truck <laughs> like I, I oh, owned a yeah. car before that record <laughs> like my parents bought me my first car that was like you know I, an old 82 El Camino that it worked on forever to get it to try to run but that Jughead's event was like okay this is the money I'm going to use put a down payment for my own truck and so that was like the first time that I had ever gotten a big chunk of money that I could, you know, like buy a big purchase with. That's and great, I, you know, man. I, want, That's... I want to say it was like 21 or something. I'd have to look that up with that year that record came I out. I think it was 99? Okay, so yeah, then I was, I was making 23, 22, 23 when I, when I actually worked on it. Yeah, I mean, I just... That was another one that surprised me when I was digging through your discography, just making sure I didn't miss anything, because I was like, wait, no shit, because I was a fan of them from Just Joined, their, I think it was their second record. Then when that one came out, I was like, holy shit, like, this one's even better. And I, I didn't know, I don't think I knew who you were at that point, but like in, uh, in my eyes, that was the best sounding one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah, that was a fun record to make. Want to touch on a, another one of those great early records that was majorly influential to me? Thrice Identity Crisis. You know, we were we were heavy into AFI and like Rise Against and Strike Anywhere had just put their first records out around this time, and that record was just such a great fusion. Uh, like we were talking about earlier with Death by Stereo, you know, like the thrash metal vibes, the harmonizing guitars, and then the pop punk hookiness of it like i just remember hearing phoenix ignition for the first time a friend was like yo you know that afi show we're going to see it was afi thrice who we had never heard of and berserk you know them yeah. friends of ours from portland but uh they're like yeah yeah you got to check out this band thrice uh, and they put on phoenix ignition and i was just like holy fuck this band is like 
playing like these mini epic suites, man. Like, what do you remember from that first Thrice record? I basically got hooked up with them because of Ron Martinez uh, from Final Conflict. He was putting out their record, and he had suggested that they come to me. Um, he was kind of like championing them of saying like, hey, I believe in these guys. Like, I think that they could be really big and really good. Paul, like, I think you could do a good job on the circuit. So he had suggested that they work with me. And they, at the same time, had said that they really liked the first Step by Step album, like the way that it sounded and stuff. And especially, I remember Ed, they started saying, like, dude, we love the group vocals. Like, can you make our group vocals sound like the nice. Step by Step record? But yeah, so it was around the time where I wouldn't say I was overthinking much. It was kind of like a get everyone in to play and put down the parts that you have and make a suggestion here and there, but it was more about just capturing the energy that they had yeah. as a band. And, and I think for them and for me, too, it was like recording it on two-inch tape, having an unautomated console, and it was more of, you know, like you get your best performance and live with the little tiny mistakes and that, that kind of thing that was maybe not specific to that album, but common to that time, but... Uh, I was looking it up while we were talking, and they recorded it at the end of 99, which is like right, right after the first Death by Stereo record came out. So at that time, I was a total studio rat, and I couldn't get enough, and I wanted to just be there as much as I could and work on as many records as I could. And it was really cool. I connected with those guys. They were, you know, i still friendly with them now. And, nice. Um, don't necessarily hang out, but say hi sometimes on social media, uh, even though lives have taken different paths and stuff. But, um, they're from around where we were from, and they are playing music like similar to we were, and it was really fun. Also wanted to touch on a couple of uh, records where um, I saw that you worked with Newfound Glory, and Tom Lord Algy mixed that record. So did you track stuff that was uh, then sent to him to be mixed later? Yeah, so I had been friends with Chad through Shy Halud and Revelation Records and Hardcore and that kind of thing. I was not really as much into the pop-punk world, not so much musically, but just like friends that I had were all from hardcore bands and yeah. pop bands. But Chad was from the hardcore world, and Warren from the Vandals was recording demos for Newfound Glory. This was when they were still on Interscope, so they were doing big time, and they had rented this house out in Malibu to do demos. And they wanted to do more, but Warren wasn't able to do more demos. So Chad asked me if I could do it. I said, hell yeah, man. And I went up there and I lived at this house for a month and wow. recorded demos with them. And we hit it off and became really good friends with those dudes. And these were demos for their forthcoming album that was going to be on Interscope. And so as soon as everyone was happy and ready with the songs... They went into the studio with the guy that they were going to do the record with, and it was like maybe a week into it, and they're, everyone in the band was like, yeah, we fucking can't stand this guy. Can we just have Paul do it? <laughs> so, so they called me back and said, hey, would you be down to record this album on Interscope? And I was like, oh my God, yes, yes. How many times can I say yes? So I didn't track the drums for that record, but I did pretty much everything else for that. And they had already booked Tom Mordaggi to mix it, who was then obviously another league and charging a lot, a lot of money to do yeah. it. That was the tail end of the days of major labels having a ton of money to throw on records. So I had actually mixed all the B-sides for that and like the bonus stuff so that it came out of like Japanese releases and, and extras, but the proper album was mixed by Tom Mordaggi, but I had tracked everything but the drums for that. 
I'll have to look up those uh, B-sides and, and just geek out and compare them. Did you go and actually attend any of the mix sessions, or was that just all done separately? No, nah, that was all remote. I didn't get to be part of that. I just emailed them back and forth of, of like technical issues or whatever, but basically just sent them the files, and, and he was off. How was that? I mean, I, I talked to Jason about having his stuff sent off to Chris Lord Algie or Andy Wallace uh-huh. and stuff like that. You know, he's had some interesting uh, stories when you're sending your stuff to other people to finish up for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like innate as a producer, engineer, that when you work so hard to get things to sound the way that you envision them in your head, it's a weird thing to let go of that, let someone else put their stamp on it. Yeah. But in that particular instance, I was like under no delusions that I was going to be competing with Tom Lord Algie as far as like mixing that record. So it's like, I wasn't butthurt or emotional about it because I knew that that was happening in the beginning. So For sure. um, other records, yeah, maybe that has been a little bit more of a thing. But, you know, most of the time there's enough communication where it's like, hey, you know, I just want the record to sound as good as it can. And it doesn't matter who's doing it, whether it's Tom or Chris Lord Algie or Tandy Wallace. It's like, they're not going to do it exactly how you have it in your head. So maybe there's that, that little bit of disconnect. Totally. That being said, I was very, very happy with the way, I mean, coming home sounds incredible. And, and I, at that time, was not able to make a record sound that way. So I didn't. You know, like I was really, really proud of how it came out because I wouldn't have been able to make it sound like that. So, well, that's know, cool. Like, I think today is a different story. Like, I feel more confident in the fact that I can compete with the biggest and best guys out there. But at that time, like, there was no way I was going to make it sound the way that it did come out. So, I was, I was really proud of it. Well, and shortly after that, H2O kind of dropped a comeback record, uh, Nothing yes. to Prove. And oh my God. What a monster. I mean, that was like debatably their best shit. I mean, you're a West Coast producer. They could have worked with anybody out there in the East. How did that come together? Actually, because of Chad from Newfound Glory. Oh. Uh, he and I had started working together a lot where he was working on producing with bands of like working on songwriting and stuff with them. And then he and I had to form the relationship because of me working with Newfound Glory. So he'd be like, hey, I'm producing this record, like, oh, you know, I like, want to bring it and we'll work on it together. So, uh, so that's what happened with a, a lot of records around that time. But you think, or not you think, like, H2O was the, the first one of those projects that we had worked on together. And actually at the time, Toby was already living in LA. Like a few of the guys, I want to say that it was just at the time, Adam and Todd that were the only ones living on the East Coast. Okay. Since then, everyone's moved out to L.A. except for Todd the Drummer. But, yeah, man, that was so fun. Such a great record and such an awesome time. And couldn't be more proud of, of how it came out. It was like, became a really big record for them and, and gave them a, a new, like, kind of a rebirth as a band. Um, I'm, like, thrilled and inspired to have been a part of it. We just had Lou on the show, uh, Lou Caller, and mentioned his contribution on that. Did you get to a uh, track with him or did he just uh, send it in from no, New York? The, yeah, the guest vocals, I just sent out files they had recorded and sent them back to me. So yeah. that was that. But it, fun fact, we, Death by Stereo, did some tours with Sick of It All. I used to do front of house sounds for Sick of It All oh. on the tour. I did that on, on a tour or two. That's awesome. Yeah. So 
We're closing in on an hour. I want to respect your time here. So I'm just going to say some names and just acknowledge that these are records that I have and love. You worked with uh, Faded Gray, Creep Division, Western Waste, Mike V and the Rats, Undermined. Oh, and shout out to uh, Raptors from uh, L.A. We uh, played with them last summer on our tour when we played a program. But you just did a couple records with some OGs. You did Adolescence and Agnostic Front within a couple of years. Yeah, the Adolescence record was kind of an, another like turning point record for me. Ephraim had kept telling Steve Soto, like, you got to record Paul, you got to record Paul. And Jim Monroe, who had done their previous couple records, was a friend of mine, and I was like, I don't want to get, I don't want to like get in the middle of anything of like having any hurt feelings stuff but obviously I would love to work with adolescence and finally kind of said I think we want to change it up so we did a record together we ended up doing three albums together and I mean like they're legendary and it was not only just being able to like become friends with them but be able to be part of their creative process and, and wit- really witness their creative process because Tony is just like so unique and inspirational of like that guy is the punkest like maybe I shouldn't say the punkest dude I know but he is one of the punkest dudes that I know because I was just inspiring him like the way that he writes lyrics the way he makes a record and, and records vocals and stuff is just so cool and brings back an energy that I feel like people don't have anymore and that it's, everything is a little bit more contrived and planned and pro- these days whereas Tony just like really is letting his Everything that's, you know, bothering him or his creativity is just exploding on record. And it's really, really fun to be part of that. And uh, two on the Exhaustive Front record, the connection there was from Rich from Instead, the hardcore band that put out a record on Epitaph back in the late 80s. I had been friends with him for a long time. And he, too, was, like, telling Roger, hey, you got to record a minor. Uh, and he had been kind of suggesting to Roger to do that for a while and, and yeah we finally did that record American Dream died and had a great time and hit it off and um, so then yeah we came back and did the next record late last year or mid- middle of last year I want to say it was at the beginning for both of those bands I was a little bit in awe you know and yeah. these guys are legendary and try to like shake that off pretty quickly of going okay no I gotta, I gotta produce this record I need to make it awesome and bring what I bring to the table and make these records of good as it can be um, you know I was able to get into that pretty quickly but it's still at the, at the beginning there's a little bit of, uh, of like well I can't believe this is happening <laughs> I can't believe I'm hanging out you know Roger Ray and Vinny Stigma in my studio and Steve Soto and Tony Adolescent like it's just yeah you know what I didn't even think about is you guys were actually you would have been label mates at the time that like Dead Yuppies and Day of the Death were less than a year yeah, apart we, never, we didn't actually play together then we never got to be play shows or tour with Agnostic Front back then, but yeah, we were on Epitaph at the same time. They were when they were kind of getting back together, like the Riot Riot Upstart record. I and, love that uh, fucking album. Dead Yuppies. I think those two albums were them coming back, and that was the, kind of the beginning of their their rebirth. And I mean, shit, now lasted twenty years, but uh, but yeah, we never really toured with them or connected with them back then. But over the years, they. Exhausted Front and Death by Stereo had toured together, but it was after I left the band. But we're all friends now, but I was, wasn't in Death by Stereo when they were touring together. 
On that note, back to Death by Stereo. One of my favorite punk albums, period, is Black Sheep of the American Dream. You rejoined the band, not only as a producer, but as the player again. Tell me anything you can about this record, because I think it is one of the most like raw yet huge, just amazing, pissed off records front to back. Like this is like like if I'm having a bad day at work, this is what I blast when we lock the doors at closing time. I mean I was Telling Mike just wow. how much I'm in love with the Black Sheep record. Yeah, that's awesome. I appreciate that. Me rejoining the band was more of a function of need. Yeah. Um, they, like, it was basically in between bass players, and I was kind of like always the default if you don't have a bass player, I'll play that kind of yep. thing. So, did that record. And, and I had by then had my studio, had Buzz Bomb for, I'm trying to think, like five or six years by then. So I was pretty settled in, and I knew that we could make an awesome record. And that was early into me of like JP and Mike being in the band, and I was a lot more relaxed, I want to say, than any other Jeff Sarah record up to that point that I worked on with them because it was my studio. We could kind of take as long as we wanted. They could have fun. We could fuck around. You know, like do a couple hours here, a couple hours there, or like do a whole weekend. It was it's a little less structured, but we also had the freedom to kind of revisit everything and make it and really hone it in until everyone's happy with it. So we were able to put in that extra time because of the freedom of not being restricted by time as much. Yeah, it really does because it's, it not only does it sound great, but it also just feels really inspired. You know, ev- like everyone really had something to say. They were each kind of putting their own mark on it. And, you know, obviously with Mike coming in in a long line of, of great Death by Stereo drummers, but like really making a mark right out of the gate. I mean, it just everyone is in top form on that record. It's funny because I feel like this is the case for any album that I work on, but you don't realize what it means when you're doing it. Yeah. You just are trying to make the best record you can. And then only upon reflection of it being out for a couple of years, you know, like six months a year, multiple years, whatever, do you realize like, man, that was a really special time in all of our lives. You know, like we had these freedoms to do this and we were inspired by these things. And that was before I had kids, uh, but I still, I had already had my studio set up and you no, know, did, did that came out? 2012. Yeah. So yeah, I just had my I just had my son. So life was kind of changing, but I was like really appreciating, you know, these friendships and and you know, connections I made because of this band for so long that we were looking, I don't know, I think the time is just the biggest thing of like going, man, we can really do what we want and make this album the way we want to. And I think it yeah, I think it came across that everyone was inspired and, and everyone got to get their energy out and, and uh, it, was, it was a really fun process did you guys take a, a similar amount of time and had some freedom making We're All Dying Just In Time the record that just came out <laughs> yeah yeah it'd be an understatement to say we took our time because <laughs> it took over a year to make wow but not like we were working on it every single day for a year but it, it was it was a little bit more difficult to get everyone nailed down to make this record this most recent record so we did it in bits. Like, we did all the drums early, and then the rhythm guitars were done shortly thereafter. But, like, took a little while to get bass done, and took a little while, a really long time to get vocals done. Because Ephraim got really busy. It was kind of ironic, because 
Ethel was living at Buzzbomb for a while, <laughs> and he was, and he was like, "Man, I'm living here now. We'll be able to do so much stuff." And the irony was is that once he started living there, is when he started doing so much with the Rose Gold and touring a ton, yep. and he was never there. So we didn't actually get to do as much as we had originally thought, but it was very much uh, work on it in little chunks over time, and then we finally, uh, finally got it done and, and mixed and just uh, getting out there in the world now. Well, and you uh, had a co-credit on this record, so it's attributed to you and JP, the other guitar player from Death by Stereo that joined on uh, on Black Sheep. Was this process different than normal for you? Yes. Yeah. So in order to finish, JP is living about an hour and a half away. So what he did was he recorded some of the guitar parts at his house by himself. Gotcha. And then he sent them down to me. That was mostly a function of just the difficulty of driving down to Buzzbomb from where he lived. And he has the, he's gotten to have quite a killer setup at home and, and is able to make awesome sounding stuff. So, yeah. He did some bass, too. He did some good bass with Robbo as well, now that I think about it. Well, you guys did an excellent job, man. I When I hit you up for this, I didn't even respect expect you to respond. I was just like, dude, <laughs> I have to tell you, this is some of the best sounding shit you've ever done. I mean, I we talked for an hour. I've heard quite a bit, man, and I, I was really excited by the sounds on this album. I mean, it's it's still raw like the last one, but it's there's just even more punch, and the guitars have that top-end edge again. It's just mean, man. It's just a really big, mean-sounding record. Like, it's... Again, I was totally in love with Black Sheep, but, you know, I'm also kind of... I get obsessed with like the blasting room and their their sounds and how um, just big and punchy the drums are and everything. And and mm-hmm. when I heard this one, it was like, holy shit, this is kind of like the best of both styles, you know, all wrapped into one. It's great. Uh, I appreciate that. I don't know how, if anyone listening to this would be bored by technical uh, jargon like this, but this is the beginning of me sing back outside of the computer again. For a long time, I was mixing just all within Pro Tools with just plugins and stuff. But in the last year, I've gone back to mixing with hardware. So this new Death Share record is me mixing with hardware instead of just computer. I mean, I'm using plugins as well, but yeah. just from a mix perspective, I think that makes a, has made the big difference of things sounding bigger and punchier and kind of more aggressive sounding and reintroducing hardware into the equation. So it's been really fun. It's kind of... It, re-inspired me as far as ideas for mixing and stuff that's great man what, whatever you're doing it, it sounds fresh it sounds inspired what do you have coming up that we haven't heard yet are you working on the Fear No Empire stuff with Mike yeah so we're actually done with that they're just waiting to release it but that was my like beginning of quarantine project where I, we were like uh, I'm not sure if we're like supposed to be doing stuff and we would just do like a, a little bit here, a little bit there. But I really haven't been doing much since the whole COVID-19 quarantine stuff. But uh, the Fear No Empire has been probably the biggest project that I have taken on over this time. We did five songs and we ended up doing one more at the very end. Um, and it's really like, not to sound hyperbolic, but this is probably my favorite thing that I've ever done from a producing engineering standpoint. Like, I'm really, really proud of, of this. I hope that people dig it. They're trying to, like, because it's a 
a new a new band that no one knows they're trying to like build it up and get some anticipation going out of nowhere because you know like no one even knew this band existed before a couple months ago but I think that during making this EP that we did I think everyone got more and more excited about it as we worked on it so like once we're hearing how it's coming out like whoa this is this is awesome like, people <laughs> might really dig this I good think that, I think people would be excited it's a little bit of it's I shouldn't say a little bit. It's a, a depart, pretty fair departure from Zebrahead. So I know that a lot of Zebrahead fans will be listening to this, but it's going to be a lot different. But I'm, I'm really proud of, of how it came out. I'm really proud of the mix. And stylistically, it's a little bit, I don't know, a good deal different than what any of those guys have been doing lately. So it's, it's going to be exciting. I think people are going to dig it. All right. That is our show. Huge thanks to Paul for coming on and, and, going deep through all these records man that was a really good time i even learned some things about other bands like bad religion stuff that i would not expect so that was a really good time um if you like the show please subscribe to it spread the word take a little screenshot we are gonna leave you off tonight with a track from the new death by stereo we're all dying just in time produced by mr paul minor this is california addiction This is the time, this is the place, it's where I